All right, good morning, Village Church. It's good to be with you guys. Um, as Reagan said, my name is Nick Bogardis. Um, my wife and I live up in Orange. We have three little kids. Um, our kind of ministry background is, I know there's some Biola kids here. I taught at Biola um, for a year, taught a music management class there, did a fellowship at their Center for Christian Thought. Um, we planted two churches, and, uh, but more importantly, the Village Church and the Kaisers have played a pretty important role through all of that. Um, you know, our first church that we planted, uh, we met in here when we first started. Um, the second church we planted, Matt was an elder for the entire eight years uh, that I led that church. And even in the throes of church planting, when my wife was raising three small kids while we were raising a young congregation, um, Ashley Kaiser babysat our kids for our daughter, uh, sorry, for my wife, uh, to give her a break. And so we have a long history here. The Kaisers have been an incredible blessing to us. I'm sure they are to you. And uh, we love the Village Church, and it's always good to be with you guys. Um, and it's also good to be here while well, the guys are up uh, on men's retreat or men's advance, right? We don't retreat, we advance, is that what we say? Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to serve so those guys can enjoy some time away. Let's pray for them and their time together, and then we'll jump into Jonah. Um, Father, we thank you that uh, we thank you that you are always merciful. Even in the midst of discipline, you are merciful and loving. God, you can't help but but love your kids, even when they're disobedient. But for those of us here this morning um, who need to hear the, the directness, but also the comfort of your words, God, would you soften our hearts to hear that this morning? And God, we pray for Matt and uh, the men of the village. Would you bless their time together as they worship you this morning, as they gather to learn from your word? We pray that you would uh, transform them, renew them, restore them, uh, and refresh them uh, for when they come back. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there is a concept in storytelling uh, called the land of the dead. It's a place of near death and despair and hopelessness. Uh, think about if you guys are anyone movie buffs, sometimes I'm taking a risk referencing movies. I either date myself or people just don't watch the same things. But let's go with Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, safe reference, right? Think about Indiana Jones in the tomb uh, with all the snakes, right? Think about Luke Skywalker uh, in the tree where he had to face himself. Think about in Cars 3 when Lightning McQueen had to go to Doc's hometown. Think about even in Coco where he literally goes underground. This concept of the land of the dead are crisis points, but they also in the story always end up being turning points. And so imagine in each of those stories that I just referenced, if you would have stopped the movie or that story at that point of crisis, at that point of turning. G.K. Chesterton said that he first felt life as a story. It's one of my favorite um, kind of takes on, on scripture and honestly existence. He said, um, I first felt life as a story. And if there's a story, there must be a storyteller. The Bible is not a series of fables or, and moral principles. And it certainly isn't a set of heroes to emulate. It's one big story of God's redemption. The author writing his story through the history of humanity. Nowhere do we see that as clearly as in moments like this passage with Jonah, in moments when his people are near death, in despair, and hopeless, and God steps in with miraculous intervention. So how do you respond 
to periods of crisis, challenge, or loss in your life. If you're like me, the temptation is to at the very least flail, maybe rage, maybe collapse in despair. But stories like what God does in this passage remind us that in crisis, the story is not over. Most of all, to this passage, it reminds us that God's discipline is always wrapped in mercy. In this series in Jonah, you guys are looking at God's heart towards difficult people. And in this passage, you'll see that his discipline is wrapped in mercy. Here's the roadmap for our time together. God's heart towards his disobedient people, our heart of repentant prayer, and our heart of reflective worship. So we're going to look at God's heart towards disobedient Jonah, and then we're going to look at Jonah's two responses here, repentance and worship. So first, God's heart towards his disobedient people. Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let me address two things before we kind of jump into the, the meat of this passage. First of all, we're talking about, in this passage, in this sermon, particular disobedience. We're talking about Jonah's particular disobedience, and this is important to kind of delineate uh, from the beginning, because in the midst of, of horrible circumstances, we need to kind of understand what's happening. And in this case, it's particular disobedience, because sometimes terrible circumstances are unjust suffering. Abuse that you've suffered at the hands of others is not God's discipline. Wrong done to you by another is not God's discipline. It's injustice. Sometimes terrible circumstances are mysterious. Cancer is not God's discipline. Chronic sickness, job loss, a natural disaster, it's not God's discipline. Sometimes terrible circumstances are the result of foolishness. Think about a breakup. Anyone have a bad dating history? Foolishness, right? Sometimes terrible circumstances are the result of foolishness, a breakup, maybe a car accident, maybe bad investments. It's important because sometimes Christians can self-flagellate in the midst of bad circumstances. What did I do to deserve this? Um, Is God mad at me? Things like that. It's, It's helpful to delineate what's happening because in this case, we're talking about Jonah's particular disobedience. Second caveat, we're talking about a literal fish. Let's just get that right on the table first, okay? Um, We need to deal with the the miracle of the fish. Both Matthew and Luke record Jesus referring to this event in Jonah as a literal event. Okay, look at this from Matthew 12. Some of the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answers them in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation asks for signs, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of fish, of uh, the earth, sorry. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We worship the Son of God who rose from the dead. Because that is true, we take what he says about the Bible as true. And so just as Jesus' resurrection wasn't figurative or spiritual, but physical and literal, so Jonah's experience is not a metaphor, but physical and literal. That's what Jesus says. This happened. So 
We're talking about particular disobedience with Jonah. And there's a real fish. Okay, let's jump on in. God's heart towards disobedient people. God's heart towards his disobedient people first is discipline. Look, remember, you guys saw last week, Jonah is disobedient. God told him to go to the east, to go to Assyria, to preach to Nineveh. Where did Jonah go? He went exactly west. He went the opposite direction. He, he heard God's clear direction. And in his contempt or hatred for his enemies, Jonah takes matters into his own hands. Some people, some of us in this room, are passively disobedient. We drag our feet, we creep out the back door, whatever it is, we disobey quietly or inwardly or under the radar. Jonah, like some of the others in this room, is much more flagrant about it. He goes and he buys a ticket to not Nineveh, as the kid's Bible says, right? God says, go east. Jonah says, watch this, I'm going west. Particular disobedience. He is calculated, actively disobedient. And in discipline, God sends a storm. And not just any storm, not an everyday storm, like a hurricane, right? This is a storm so severe that experienced sailors in the boat are overwhelmed, throwing things overboard, crying out for deliverance. Think about, uh, do you guys ever watch those, uh, those videos like on YouTube or Instagram of like storms, uh, boats in major storms? I am terrified of boats, so it's like living a nightmare when I watch those things. Uh, but you see these boats just kind of going up and down on these massive 50-foot waves, and it looks absolutely terrifying. I would be under the deck wanting out. And that's kind of how bad this storm is for these guys. These experienced sailors are completely terrified at what's happening. God's discipline sends a storm that is so overwhelming that what these men could usually deal with is outside of their realm of control. And Jonah himself, in the midst of this discipline and the storm, he says that he worships the God who made the sea and the dry land. He recognizes that this chaos is under the hand of the God he worships. And this fish is discipline in the verse that we're looking at here. The fish is discipline. Because who else but God, the God of the land and the sea and the heavens and everything that's made, could send a fish to swallow somebody? That's unbelievable. This is God's particular hand of discipline on his disobedient kid. But God's heart is not just discipline. Within the discipline, there is mercy. Because the fish was mercy, believe it or not. It may not have looked like it. It may not have felt like it. And think about, go with me on this disgusting picture. Think about what it must have been like to be in like the belly of a fish. Right? Don't think that you're like sitting comfortably in a huge room, just kind of passing time to get out of this thing. Think about, again, have you guys ever seen those disgusting videos of like snakes who swallow huge animals or things like that? Think about being like, tightly wrapped in slime and whatever else this fish ate and everything else. And it's like, how disgusting, how smelly, how, like, think about the textures in there. You, you texture people. It must have been horrific. And he's in, he's in the belly of this fish. And yet this fish is mercy. Because the truth is, 
the fish carried him through the storm. This disgusting vehicle was the very, this disgusting fish was the very vehicle of deliverance. God's discipline is always done in love. His discipline is always wrapped in mercy and love. This fish is a picture of that. The author of Hebrews says just as much in a, a well-known passage some of you are familiar with. Verse uh, 12, verse 7. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate and not sons. And besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected him. Should we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's the author of Hebrews saying? Loving parents discipline their kids. And if we have experienced fathers who loved us and who disciplined us well, and we learned that that was actually good for us, how much more does the father who disciplines his kid love us? And that it's for our good. I was a really hard teenager. I was not a good kid. And I distinctly remember hitting like 22 years old. And if you haven't hit this point yet, it's not too late. Uh, I remember going, oh my gosh, my parents were right about everything. <laughs> like everything they disciplined, like all the correction they told me, like nothing good happens after midnight. I never did anything good after midnight. Like that, like, like the discipline was loving and it was true and it was good. And God's discipline is the same. And God's discipline isn't just corrective, though in this case with Jonah, it 100% is corrective. And in many of our cases and other instances in Scripture, it is 100% corrective. But discipline always has two sides of the coin. It corrects and it calls back, but it also teaches. It instructs. This is what a good, loving parent does. It's what we see God doing here. And this is just a little bit of a side, not, side note. Um, kind of application here, but, but because in our current moment, self-expression and self-definition are a premier value, sometimes there are parents who think that their child should lead in their own development, and others hand over the training and discipline to schools or coaches or the state. Training and discipline is the job of a loving parent. God has placed parents in the lives of their children to reflect Him by lovingly disciplining, teaching, correcting them. God's discipline is always wrapped in mercy and love. Now here's a key to Jonah. And this was growing up uh, in the church as far back as like the kids back here in Sunday school hearing the story of Jonah. Familiar with the story of the fish, right? Oh my gosh, there's this beautiful key to this story that I had not seen until prepping for this, and I'm thankful Matt had me do this. One of the keys for Jonah here in this story is what he was doing. It's not just that he was disobedient. He was particularly disobedient. And in this disobedience, the Bible tells us what the particularity was. Look, if you have the, if you have the ESV, I'm reading the ESV here. Look at the header in chapter one. What does that say to you? Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 3. 
He, went, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, what is it you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's trying to run away from God. It's not just that he doesn't want to do something. It's that he doesn't want to be near to God. The God whose voice he's heard. He's running from his presence. And the beautiful thing about the story of Jonah is that he couldn't escape. He couldn't escape God's presence. There's a, there's a musician that I really love. His name's Andy Squires. He has a line where he says, I made plans to leave Christ, but it's not going so well because it turns out he made plans to never leave me. God's heart towards his disobedient people is mercy. That God was with Jonah as he made plans to disobey. God was with him as he bought the one-way ticket to not Nineveh. God was with Jonah as he tried to run away. God was with him in the storm as he was likely terrified. God was with him as he was thrown overboard. And God was with him in the dark, smelly, unbelievable experience of being in the belly of the fish. Jonah thought he could run from God's presence, but God had other plans. His discipline is always wrapped in mercy. Now, to this mercy and to this discipline, how does Jonah respond? The first way he responds is with repentant prayer. Verses one through six here. Again, imagine Jonah's circumstances. Who else but God could orchestrate the situation in the belly of the fish? I don't know about you. If I was there, I'd be like, okay, this doesn't just happen. Like, only one person in the universe could send me to this place. He was running, but now he's captive. How would he respond? Jonah repents. Notice how Jonah's words center on God's merciful presence in these verses. He says, he called out from the grave and you heard my voice in, in verse two. Look at verse two. He, he's crying out from the grave. He, he, he feels on the brink of death. He feels uh, in the most uh, terrifying place for all humans. The, the, like the thought of death terrifies you if you are human. And he says, I cried out from the grave and yet you heard my voice. Look at verse four. I'm driven from your sight, yet I know I will be in your presence again. Again, the theme of presence. I went down to the bottom of the world, but you brought me up in verse six. These horrible situations have led to Jonah's repentance. And his repentance is crying out for God's merciful presence. And this is a great picture of repentance. It's it's turning from our disobedience. Repentance is, um, repentance is, is not, here's what repentance is not saying, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Repentance is sorry, repentance is not like, I, I, I'm sorry for the thing I did. Repentance is a particular turning from something to God. It is a turning from our disobedience, our idolatry, all the things that we loved other than God, and turning back to him. It's personal, not transactional. 
I, uh, as I mentioned, I kind of, I grew up in the Lutheran church most of my life. I knew the way I describe it, and this is more my own fault than anybody else's, but I feel like I, I learned more about what it meant to be Lutheran or about Luther than what it meant to be a Christian and follow Jesus. So I knew all the right things to do. I knew all the right things to say. I knew uh, what it meant to belong in a church and how to kind of be the good guy, right? Um, well, there came a point in my 20s where the good guy facade was ex- <laughs> destroyed mercifully by God. And I had to face for the first time in my life that I was actually a real wholehearted sinner. <laughs> like a real concrete in the flesh, in rebellion sinner. And it went from being, sin went from being an abstract concept. It went from being something that was their problem to something that was my problem. And it was in me. And it was something I was powerless against. It was the first time I actually repented. And the truth is this happens over and over. But if you've grown up in the church, sometimes you can distance yourself from the personal part of this because you know the right things to say. You know the right things to do. And you miss the part where you actually turn from the thing that you're loving back to the God who's calling you. So Jonah's repentance is turning away from his idolatry, from the things that he loved, back to the presence of God. And here's the vital question here at this point when we look at repentance. God will lovingly discipline those he loves He will send storms because he's a God who loves his kids. He will chase them down. He will send storms. He will send unbelievable circumstances. And so the question is, how will you respond in the midst of the storm? And how will you respond in the midst of God's discipline? Sometimes we respond with self-pity, self-confidence, We believe there's some kind of injustice being done against us. We respond in anger against God. I don't deserve this. In the storm, under the waves, in the belly of a fish, Jonah responds in repentance. Charles Charles Spurgeon says this kind of poetically where he says, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me upon the rock of ages. Another beautiful ocean (laughs) picture here. Spurgeon says, I've learned to kiss the waves, which is a, a beautiful picture. Spurgeon's no dummy. He's, he's, he's a skilled writer. And the thought of kissing waves is kind of silly, isn't it? <laughs> like, how do you do that? To wholly embrace the storm that God's sending with affection, because you know the end of it is going to be more of Christ. Repentance. But repentance always has another action associated with it. Not only does Jonah repent, but he also worships. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry, God. I I turn from these things and and I need you. Okay, next. No, no, no. He goes from there to worship. Look at verses 7 through 10. Jonah's heart of reflective worship. Jonah reflects on his own powerlessness and his need for deliverance for a wisdom, a power, a goodness outside of him. Look at verse seven. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. My life was fainting away. He's recognizing his powerlessness, which is easy to do in the belly of a fish, isn't it? Right? And for some of us, it comes at different points. 
you reflect on your powerlessness in the face of, what well, I kind of think about instances with, like, with, with discipline, where because of an action you took, you were on the verge of losing a marriage. Because of an action you took, you were on the verge of losing friendships or a job. Or because of a sinful, disobedient action you took, you are on the verge of losing all your finances or whatever it is. Those moments of absolute powerlessness is what Jonah's admitting. God, I can't handle this, but you can. You have to think, God, if you brought me here in the belly of a fish, you can get me out of this. If you have power over all of this that has gotten me to this horrifying moment, you also have power over my deliverance. Jonah's admitting his powerlessness and he is worshiping the God of wisdom and power and goodness outside of him. And Jonah reflects on the vanity and the fruitlessness of idolatry. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's a key part of worship and repentance of actually, in a way, scorning, mocking the things that you used to love, seeing that at the end of them, whatever it is you were pursuing, status, money, sex, power, being able to call it what it is and go, this is empty and hollow, and it will lead to nothing. And by pursuing it, it's vain, and I forsake, what does he say? I forsake my hope of steadfast love. There's a grief in that. There's a, there's a beautiful grief in that, right? I can't believe I used to do this. God, you're so much better. He's worshiping. And then Jonah expresses his gratitude and praise to the one single truth we need to know about God. Look at verse 9. If you're looking for a theological summary statement where if someone says, what do you believe about God or about Jesus, just put this one in your pocket because it's beautiful. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He saves from beginning to end. At the, at the peak, at the, at the summation of Jonah's worship is this truth. He saves in the fish. He, he recognizes all he has all he can hope for comes from the Lord. God's heart towards the hardest people to disobedient people is deliverance. I've already kind of teased that out a little bit earlier with the passage from Matthew in Jesus' words there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, so the good news is that there was a greater Jonah. That years later, God would send a greater Jonah, who would be faithful in doing the Lord's work, who didn't run the opposite direction of where God called him to, but he actually entered into the suffering, the wounds, the sin of those who hated him. That he would preach repentance to his enemies. That all the while he would rejoice at their repentance. That he would eat and drink and bless sinners as he went amongst them. This greater Jonah would endure the storm of God's wrath for our sin, for our disobedience. And Jesus would not be saved from that storm, but he would instead be, he would instead be crucified and die and be buried in a borrowed grave. 
But three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead to bring those who run from God back to his presence now and forever. I felt, first, I felt life first as a story, and if there's a story, there's a storyteller. God's story is beautiful. As we close, here's my question. Why did God discipline and deliver Jonah? I want you to see first that in, in God's discipline, God's discipline is always wrapped in mercy and love. And our response, our right response, I plead with you this morning, your response would be repentance and worship to that discipline. But then you ask the question, well, well, why did he do this to Jonah? Why did he discipline and deliver Jonah? First, because he loved him. But also, because Jonah wouldn't be competent to fulfill God's call in his life unless he failed at it first. Unless he experienced an awareness of his own sin, his own need for deliverance, repented of his own idols, his own experience of mercy and grace. Remember, God is telling him, Go preach repentance to these sinners. And Jonah's response was, they're not worth it. I'm better than them. Well, God says, we'll see about that. How about I take you to the bottom and then I send you out? Had God not done this with Jonah, alongside Jonah, he would not have been prepared for the mission God was calling him to. God was lovingly shaping him for the work ahead. One of my favorite writers and theologians, Paul Tripp, says this, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Jonah was disobedient. God was also merciful. And part of that mercy was shaping Jonah. And what's amazing to even think about is that God was not just working in Jonah. God was preparing salvation for the Assyrians. He was preparing his messenger to bring a humble, he was going to humble his messenger to bring a message to people that he hated so that they would be saved. God was simultaneously bringing Jonah to repentance to help him experience more of his presence, and he was preparing salvation for the Assyrians. He was making a humble preacher. So for some of you guys, you've been on the receiving end of God's merciful, loving discipline. Am I alone in the room? Or is that, yeah? Good. I hear enough chuckles to know this room's full of God's kids that he loves and who he disciplines. And you've been through storms. Maybe you've been in the belly of a fish. And you can reflect on the goodness that God was with you. And so this morning, maybe your response is just gratitude and worship, like Jonah. You just get to celebrate. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy in that discipline. Others of you are running from God, like Jonah. There might be some of you here this morning, and you are calculatedly, actively running from the presence of God. You are saying, I don't want him. I want the opposite. I'm going in the opposite direction. I know what he wants me to do, and I'm going to do the exact opposite of that. And if that's you, the invitation this morning is to wake up and repent, to turn from those things that you are pursuing. Your choice is disobedience and ultimately to find, like Jonah, see Jonah's words. The end of your idolatry, the end of your disobedience is powerlessness, foolishness, vanity, and fruitlessness. And so the invitation is to turn from that 
It's actually an easy deal, isn't it? Because the other side of that is forgiveness and mercy and God's wisdom and love. That's a better thing to turn to. And lastly, some of you might be in the middle of some discipline. You might feel like you're in the middle of the storm, in the belly of the fish, at the bottom of the sea. And like Jonah says here, and in Psalm 139 says elsewhere, there is nowhere that you can go outside of God's presence. You're not alone. He's with you, and he will deliver. Friends, you're known by a God with relentless love, the Lord of heaven and earth who made the earth and the seas. His discipline is wrapped in mercy and love so that you would be with him now and forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, if you guys would, we're going to do something a little different um, from what you guys typically do on Sundays, but go with me on this. We're going to do some confession as a church. If you guys would please stand, and um, we'll confess together as a people. Please read the bolded portions aloud with me. I think this kind of stuff is very helpful um, because it gives us Okay, actually, here, side note. I was, doing a, I was leading a worship cohort uh, for worship leaders and lead pastors with my friend Mike. And Sandra McCracken, if you guys know who she is, she's a worship leader. She wrote a great hymn called uh, We Will Feast. She was a guest one time for one of the groups, and she had gone through a, a horrific divorce. And she shared that one time at her worst, at her most despairing, she came into her church, and they were working through a part of the liturgy together. And she realized that it gave her words for things she couldn't express herself. She was thankful that she didn't internally have to go inward and try to come up with the language, that it gave her words to express where she was and to talk to God. And so that's kind of what we're doing here together. So we're going to confess sin and celebrate God's assurance of forgiveness. So please read the bolded portions aloud with me. Father, we are sorry for the many times we have disobeyed your voice and ran from your presence. For the times we have not repented, but chosen to hide, minimize, or justify. Father, we have sinned, forgive us. For the times we have not rejoiced with the repentant sinner. Father, we have sinned, forgive us. And for the times we have withheld blessing others as you have blessed us. Father, we have sinned, forgive us. For the times we have doubted you, and despaired in a season of injustice or suffering. God, we have sinned. Forgive us. Dear friends, there is good news. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are assured that there is no sin so terrible that God cannot forgive, no hurt so terrible that God cannot heal. God accepts, forgives, and sets free. Let's receive and celebrate the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ with words from the Apostle Paul together. Please read the bolded portions aloud with me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.